Okay, welcome to the Grains of Dirt podcast. And this is the, the third and final part of this series called Jesus is a Calvinist. <laughs> it is, it's been amazing to me um, the kind of responses that I've had already uh, that I've received regarding the title that I've chosen to have for this series. I mean, I, I knew the title would be provocative, uh, but some people have really taken issue with me for, for using that title. And what is amazing is that they, the ones that have really taken issue with me have criticized me very harshly without even listening to the podcasts, wherein I, I actually give an explanation for the title. If you go back and listen, in both the previous po- podcasts, I explain why I use this title. I'm, I'm simply showing that the doctrines that are called today, uh, Calvinism, were taught by Jesus and the apostles long before this guy, John Calvin, um, who came along in the 1500s. Most who know very little about Calvinism give all credit for these doctrines to this man who lived in the 1500s, this man, John Calvin. And most who believe in these doctrines are called by most people in the church Calvinists. Now, um, I'm not offended by that title. Uh, when somebody calls me a Calvinist, I'm, I'm fine with it, even though I'm not a follower of John Calvin. Um, I'm, not, I'm not offended because I understand what the term Calvinism has come to mean. Um, it doesn't mean I, I, I'm a disciple of John Calvin. Um, yet hypocrites who call me a Calvinist and get offended and, and upset because I titled this teaching, Jesus is a Calvinist. Yes, the title is meant to be understood as being somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Um, it's making a simple statement about how odd it is to credit the doctrines of grace taught by Jesus and the apostles to a man who lived 1,500 years after them. So to those people who went out of their way um, to tell me that they refused to listen to the podcast be, just because of the title, I, I say to them, well, okay, whatever, Um I don't really care. Uh, people like to arrogantly abide in their ignorance, and, and that's just the way it is. But for you who are listening now, I, I thank you, and, and I hope this series has um, somehow helped you to understand the, these things called the doctrines of grace, commonly called Calvinism. Um, but I want to continue. I want to finish up this series with part three and uh, picking up where we left off in part two, we were in the middle of ta- uh, talking about the I in the acronym TULIP, the I which stands for irresistible grace. And we were looking specifically at, at a, critical pa- a critical verse and passage um, that has to do with this idea of um, the doctrines of grace and irresistible grace and limited atonement and these things. John 6, 44, John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus is talking here, and it says... He says, no one can come to me. No one can come to me. No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him, the person that the Father draws, up on the last day. So not only is man incapable of coming to Christ, but he is completely unwilling 
to come to Christ. And it, and it takes the drawing of the Father, the effective drawing of the Father, which it's not a, an appeal by God, um, but the drawing of God is a sovereign and effectual act. It's like drawing a bucket of water from a well or a sword from, it, from its sheath. It's not God just striving and begging us to come to him or him trying to dangle a carrot in front of the rebel sinner to get him to come. No, that's not what God is doing. God's drawing is an efficacious, sovereign act on his part. He does not fail. All whom he draws are raised to eternal life. That's what that John 64 says. His drawing of us to himself is irresistible. And notice in, in this passage, in its context, all who are drawn by him are raised up to eternal life. That means when God draws someone, as I said before, he doesn't fail in bringing them to himself. That is irresistible grace. Man's free will, so-called, is, is nowhere spoken of in Scripture, conceptually or literally. The only time the term free will is ever used in Scripture, in the Old Testament really, is regard to free will offerings, which do not have anything to do with um, soteriology. Yes, man makes decisions, and he is held accountable to the decisions that he makes. But prior to being born again, those decisions are, are well, first of all, we're, we're incapable of choosing God, but those decisions prior to being born again are not determined by a free will, but by a will that is in bondage to sin, that is enslaved to sin. Only after we are drawn irresistibly to Christ are we then set free from this bondage. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Notice again, it is Christ that has set us free, not our free will decision to accept him. Now, some will say, well, that passage even says, do, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So it's, it's uh, saying that you can you know, choose to go back into slavery. Well, the idea that God's, um, the word of God, it, it, God uses his means to an end. He, he, the word of God is a command that he uses to achieve that grace. So it, it's, it's a command to the, the person that's been set free to not even consider going back into sin or, or falling into the sin or allowing the flesh to have any part in his life again um, because you have been set free in Christ. You have that ability to say no to sin now. But uh, it, again, it, it, is, it is that Christ has set us free, not our free will decision to accept him because we didn't have a free will. We are incapable of coming to him is what John 6.44 says. And how pretentious it is to even say, yes, I accept Jesus as if, as if we have the right to reject him. Um, no, salvation is not about us accepting Christ, but it's about Christ accepting us into his holy kingdom. He accepts us as we were, were as we are as rebel god hating sinners he takes out that heart of stone as ezekiel 36:26 says he takes out that heart of stone that 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 produced that sinful god hating worldview and then gives us a new spiritual heart free from the blind the the, the blindness and the bondage of sin a heart that sees christ as utterly irresistible for he is the reason 
that we exist. The irresistible nature of Christ to the Christian is the sign that the person has been brought to spiritual life. To reject Christ still is to show evidence of a dead spiritual heart. Um, the Arminian will still, or the synergist will still disagree and say, no, God won't violate a person's free will. So they're saying that God's desire to save a person can be thwarted by the so-called free will of man. But what does scripture say? Job 42, 2. Job chapter 42, verse 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's what, that's what the scripture says about, about, about God. The Holy Spirit inspired this, this writer to, to, to testify that Job testified that no purpose of God's, just like Ephesians 1.11, God's will will be achieved. So apparently the Arminian believes that God desires not to violate a person's free will more than he desires to save the person. And that doctrine is found nowhere in Scripture. But I've already read passages like Ezekiel 36.26 and Proverbs 21.1 wherein God changes a person's will sovereignly. So the Arminian believes God values our free will above our salvation, even though God's word says we are incapable of coming to him and says nothing in scripture about our free will. Rather, as I pointed out earlier, scripture teaches that we are in bondage to sin and that our salvation is not dependent upon our free will, but on God's free will. Again, see Romans 9.16, see John 1 verses 12 and 13, and John 15, 16. Romans 9, 16 says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion. It's not on our, it doesn't depend, our salvation does not depend on our human will or, or what we're doing, our works. And what does it say? It says, but it depends on God who has mercy. John 1, 12 through 13. I've already cited this in the past two um, podcasts repeatedly. John chapter 1 verse 12 through 13 says, But to all who did receive him, speaking of Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And, and now if you stop there, you, you may misunderstand what is being said. You have to go on to verse 13, which says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I had one person um, respond to this podcast claim that this verse, these verses in John 1, 12, 13 says uh, that we must place our faith in Christ first and then we are born again. But if, if that's the chronology, that means that we have to make a decision for Christ out of our own free will. But this passage says that the cause of our spiritual rebirth into God's family is not due to our will, but to the will of God. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, it says that faith is the gift of God. He gives it to us by grace. So, so that, and that's faith. I mean, so that's something he puts in us. John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask 
the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, some will argue that the John 15 passage I just cited was not about salvation, but about Christ choosing his 12 apostles. No, I believe the sum of all scripture teaches that this applies to both, in that God elected them for salvation, with the noted exception of Judas, and Jesus elected them to be his anointed apostles. And apart from God changing their will, they would not have been saved, let alone be apostles. Again, listen carefully to Acts chapter 13, 48. I, I cited this back in the first part. Acts 13, 48, such a critical passage. And it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, speaking of the gospel going forth to the Gentiles, when they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Those whom God appointed, those who he chose to have eternal life, they, as a result of his choosing, believed. That is the result of the irresistible grace of God and how glorious it is. So you see, when we start to examine the scriptures and examine how they're worded, a lot of times we try to, we kind of blur over these things and allow our presuppositions and traditions to reinterpret what's being said. But when you actually look at what's being said, it's clear that the doctrines of grace are being expounded here, clearly. And finally, we go to the last category of this acronym of TULIP, which is the P, it stands for the Perseverance of the Saints, the final category of the so-called Five Points of Calvinism. The Five Points of Calvinism should be called the Five Points of Grace, <laughs> For biblical soteriology is all about God's grace, not about our free will. Yet modern evangelicalism makes it about free will, makes it about God, you know, respecting our free will. No, I don't want God to respect my free will because if that's the case, I will always choose to rebel against him. <laughs> I need his grace. I need him to change my heart and cause me to come unto him. Grace can be defined as God's favor toward the unworthy or God's benevolence on the undeserving. In his grace, God is willing to forgive us, to sanctify us, and bless us abundantly in spite of the fact that we don't deserve to be treated so well or dealt with so gener generously. If our salvation relies on something that we must do to enact God's grace then we are doing something to earn that grace. And therefore, grace ceases being grace. As scripture says, grace ceases being grace if, if it's something that we can earn. Romans 11 verses 5 through 6 says, So too at this present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And make no mistake, if faith is something we do in and of ourselves, that is a work. But scripture is clear that saving's faith is not the work of man, but the work of God in us. If salvation were dependent upon a decision that we make, then we can also decide to walk away from Christ, thus losing our salvation status. However, scripture clearly teaches that those who have been given to Christ will not be lost. John 6, verse 39 through 40. It says, And this 
is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has given that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So it's not speaking, you know, it's not speaking universally, it's speaking to those whom God has given to Christ. Now, some people get thrown off by the term um, that they should have eternal life. When, it's, when it says, uh, um, in the verse 40, it says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Some people get thrown off by that as if it were possible that the person won't be saved. However, in the original language, this term is not leaving open any possibility that it won't come to pass. It is clearly stating it will in the original language. But if there is still any doubt concerning the per perseverance of the saints, consider Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When you are born again, you, when you are born again, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee that we will persevere and be saved. Now some will object and say they have known people who were Christian. And they claimed to be born again and were baptized. They read the Bible. They went to church, but have since renounced their faith and are no longer walking with Jesus. I've known people who fit this description as well. However, Scripture also describes these kinds of people. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 19 says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Jesus taught many parables describing true Christians and being alongside those who pretend. The wheat and the tares growing up together. These are illustrations of those who profess to be of Christ, but the fruit of their lives does not support that claim. And eventually many of those playing at church, pretending to be Christians, walk away from their profession. While others continue, scarily enough, continue until their dying day professing to be Christian, but do not have a genuine savings faith. And scripture mentions what it will be like for those people in judgment. In Matthew 7, 22 through 23, it says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? See, it's a very religious person talking right there. And then it goes on to say, And then, God speaking, will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So this person that's saying this to God, this describes a person that is trusting in their own works and likely had a profession of faith, but God never knew them. They, their profession was not genuine. And they never really knew God. 
See, God doesn't know people and then forget them because they chose to walk away. No, those who are saved by grace through faith are irresistibly drawn to Christ and they will not walk away from Christ because he is irresistible. They will not have a deconstruction story as we have heard from many who professed lately who have professed to be believers but have since walked away from their so-called faith. They were never really of us. They were never really truly born again. They did not have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit did not indwell them, even though they, on the surface, looked like they were. <clears throat> a genuine faith is not a faith that a person walks away from. And this is good news. This is the gospel. This is amazing grace. Our coming to salvation does not depend on us, nor does it depend on us to maintain our salvation status. That's what works-based religions like Roman Catholicism and Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses, they all teach that you have to maintain your salvation by doing certain things. But no, it's, it's then grace ceases being grace. It is all the work of God in us by grace. And the five points of grace which biblically show us that Jesus is indeed a Calvinist and that he taught these doctrines of grace, these doctrines that are called today Calvinism, um, it's, it's really not, shouldn't be called Calvinist theology. It's just biblical Christian theology. Synergism, Arminianism, these are examples of inconsistent theology influenced by man-made tradition. I did not come to believe in the doctrines of grace because they were appealing or because they were popular. I was in a church that regularly spoke against Calvinism very much. I even preached in that church and preached against Calvinism in many, on many occasions. But I came to believe the five points, the five doctrines of grace because of Scripture, because of God's Word. I had to deal with what God's Word said and be consistent about it, even though my tradition and my flesh didn't like Calvinism. I could not escape the reality of what God's word clearly says. But when I did embrace these scriptures as they were intended, my understanding of the extent of God's grace was magnified. And I quickly became, came to love the doctrines of grace. And most importantly, I came to love God more. I loved Christ more because I had a bigger picture of God's grace. I had a bigger picture of my depravity in that not even I made the choice to come to Christ because then I could boast in that choice. No, it was God's grace who brought me to that. He's the one that pulled me out of the way of that oncoming bus against my will <laughs> and saved my life. He's the one that pulled me out of the water dead after drowning and breathed new life into me. It is my hope and prayer that this teaching will have answered some of your questions about this controversial topic. It is my prayer that the Holy Spirit will cause you to fall more in love with Christ through these doctrines that are so well established in God's word, just as I have come to love um, Christ more. Now I know many who hear this may still not be convinced. I, I get it. 
I went 12 years fighting against the doctrines of grace. I, I used to listen to guys like R.C. Sproul and, and James White, and I hated them. I wanted, I wanted to disprove everything that they were saying so much because I hated what they were teaching. I liked a lot of the other things they were said, but whenever they talked about the doctrines of grace and this Calvinism thing, I wanted to yell at them, and I literally did. And I would stop listening to them, and I, then I'd deal with the word more, and I'd go back to listening to a bunch of those guys and hear them teach. And it, it was, I couldn't get away from the inconsistencies that I was, in my inconsistent understandings of those texts in Scripture. Things like Romans 9, things like John 6, John 1, um, Ephesians uh, 1, Ephesians 2. You know, there's so many, so, there were so many areas that I just did not have a peace about because I saw a conflict. I saw inconsistency with my synergistic Arminian view and what was said in Scripture. And when I embraced the doctrines of grace, when I accepted this thing that's called Calvinism, a light went on and all of a sudden these scriptures all fell into place like a fine woven quilt. <laughs> but I understand it's a difficult thing to deal with. It's a difficult thing to come to terms with because our flesh can be so stubborn. It's a process that the Holy Spirit does in us. He first presents the scriptural case, which I pray, I, I've attempted to do, and I pray that it, it, but did it in such a way that it was understand, understandable to you. And then the Holy Spirit causes our heart to recognize how holy God is and how gracious he is. Calvinism, or the doctrines of grace, simply magnify the grace of God. It does not turn him into a monster as some erroneously claim. For those who claim that the Calvinist's God is a monster to, uh, who sends children to hell, well, you, you simply don't understand the doctrines of grace and you are allowing your own presuppositions and traditions to blur your understanding of scripture. Yes, we all have presuppositions and traditions, even Calvinists. But if you listen to these past three podcasts, I have made the case from Scripture to defend my presuppositions and traditions concerning the doctrines of grace. Presuppositions and traditions that I did not have seven years ago. For it was in, in 2014 when I came to terms with what God's Word says on these issues. And I've been studying these things ever since and I've been you know, wrestling with the 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 arguments of that I used to argue all the time and, and realizing how inconsistent those arguments are. And I've just presented some of them to you in these past three podcasts. And I realized how wrong I was, how inconsistent I was with God's word, how inconsistent I was with just recognizing my own depravity and inability to, to come to Christ on my own. So I hope this podcast will help those that are still committed to their unbiblical, synergistic, soteriological system. And I don't say that in pride. I'm saying that because that's what I have come to recognize is true. Because, you know, I was once an Arminian. I was once a synergist that was vigilantly speaking against Calvinism and 
and arguing with people that I knew that were Calvinists and trying to tell them they were wrong and that their God was a monster. And it was the word of God that humbled me to realize I was wrong. So I, I pray that this podcast will help you to realize that God's grace concerning these doctrines of grace, that God's grace is much more amazing than what your current system of belief teaches, this, your current synergistic Arminian system of belief teaches. Because indeed, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to come unto Christ, and he, by his grace, made us alive again and drew us unto him sovereignly, effectively, and perfectly. So I'm going to end it here. Um, this one's a little shorter than the other ones. So, so uh, again, I thank you for listening. I hope uh, you were able to listen to all three um, parts of this and pray it was a blessing to you. And uh, again, just thank you. God bless and have a wonderful day in the Lord.